We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's your True Faith Newcastle United podcast. I'm Charlotte Robson. It's the international break. So what better time to really start digging deeper into issues surrounding Newcastle United. I am joined today by Mick Martin. Hi, Mick. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Charlotte. Thanks for thanks for the invite. You're so welcome. I'm so grateful to have you here. Uh, we are going to talk what is wrong with Newcastle United. Um, so buckle in because we're going to be here for several hours. Um <laughs> We're not, don't worry. We're going to try and be concise. And the sort of backbone of this conversation that we're going to have today is an article mix written for the website, which is called Built on Sand. It's very good, asks a lot of questions, which I'm sure we're going to ask here as well. But please do head on over there and, and have a look. Um, we want to kind of um, to examine why the club keeps failing. I mean, I know that that you know that there are pundits who are saying we're not failing. We're still in the Premier League. Like, why are we? You know, why are we so miserable? But um, it's it's more than I think a string of bad results or a string of bad managers. There are you know systemic problems at Newcastle United, um, arguably. So um, you know if. Yeah, we can get into the sort of nitty gritty of it. I've got sort of a couple of stats and things like that. But I suppose the best way to start, and Mick and I chatted just before we started, I suppose the best way to start this podcast and to, to examine what is wrong over there at St. James's Park and beyond is to really think about the structure of the club and the leadership and um, and all of that stuff. At the moment, we've got the head coach, which is normally coupled with this director of football role, which we don't seem to have. Um, there seems to be um, people in roles that perhaps they're not, they don't have a lot of expertise for. Mick, what do you think? How do you think, what do you think the structure of the club is at the moment? Well, it's difficult to identify any structure at all. So I look at um, Steve, if you start with Steve Bruce's title and then you work back from that. So um, Bruce is described as a head coach. Um, that's obviously different from a manager and it suggests a different structure. So normally um, a head coach is something that kind of has an echo of what goes on in European football. 
um, where um, they don't have the British kind of um, model of a, of a manager who is almost the kind of the father of the club. Um, we can all think of uh, figures like that from football history who've, who've done everything at the club. Um, head coach seems to be someone who works within a much broader structure and that's a legitimate structure to have uh, in mod in modern football most most clubs have that now um and uh, and i look at um at bruce he's described as a, a head coach um but um uh, you have to work you have to understand that his responsibilities begin and end with the first team um now we can have a separate debate about how well he or otherwise he's doing that but um that's been well repeated hasn't it in recent months yeah um, so we'd end up, we'd end up yeah. sidetracking for a long time if we start <laughs> exactly that so we'll try and avoid that but so normally when you have that head coach structure you would have someone who's a director of football um who's responsible for the broader football development um so things like the academy um coaching scouting um and the the um uh, the sports science side of the club and a guy like Bruce would be allowed to get on with the um, with the with concentrating on preparing the first team for Premier League fixtures and obviously he'd be plugged into what else was going on at the club that's 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 natural um, but at Newcastle uh, we've got this guy Bruce whose own involvement appears to be solely the first team uh, yeah. and has kind of a very kind of confused um, role within the broader direction of the club. So uh, you have to look at kind of things that have been going on in the academy of re in recent years. Um, and uh, and most recently, um, Joe Joyce's resignation from, um, from his position as head of the academy. Um, bizarrely, coming on the back of his wife's complaint about how his son is being treated in the Newcastle United Academy that her husband leads. So we don't know the, we don't know the detail about that and it, it could be a million and one different things. But um, So then you look at that and you also look at things like the Peter Beardsley crisis of a few years ago when, uh, when he was accused of very unpleasant um, uh, things, including bullying and um, accusations of, uh, of using racist language, which led to him leaving the club. So that kind of makes me ask the question, who has got oversight of how that structure develops at the club? So who in a senior position at Newcastle United with sufficient expertise about sports science, about coaching, about the broader sport development of Newcastle as a sporting institution, which we sometimes forget that's what it's there for. Um, how how is that kind of led? How is that managed? Um, and the only person that I can see who's there who provides any oversight at that level is Lee Chonley, whose role is managing director. Now. Uh, that's his. That's his title. Now we really don't know what where Charlie's um, responsibilities begin and end, but I would hope they don't involve leading the football, any football side of the club, because he has absolutely zero competence 
uh, in that area. And, th and this is where it gets to kind of become difficult about how the club is led, what strategy it has, um, what plan it has at all, uh, around things like facilities, things like um, the medical side of the club, etc., etc. All of those things that Rafa Benitez was so keen to get himself involved in because he no doubt saw Newcastle as his opportunity for to develop the club as a project and uh, and put all of those things into place in the absence of no one else. So you have to ask your ask the question. Who's actually doing all of that, and where does it start and finish, and what and what is Bruce doing there? If his job is head coach, and he doesn't seem to be doing much of that, let's be honest. Um, so there's the broader strategic development of the club, where there seems to be a massive hole. Your question, I think, presupposes that there is anybody doing that or interested in it, because your question is asking who's doing it. Is it being done? Is that is there anyone with that role? I think presumably not really. It seems to be, you know, I know we've had COVID and I know there's been a lot of staff on furlough and all of that stuff. But broadly speaking, from what I can see at the club, there's it's very reactive. There's not a lot of proactivity. Um and, and maybe I'm wrong and I could and I'm very open to, you know, I've been wrong before, very few times, but it's happened. <laughs> um and, and it, it does seem, and, and I've worked in like places where, you know, there's not a lot of um, processes or whatever put in place for the future. It's just, we'll just react to what's happening now and we'll deal with whatever gets thrown our way. And it's such an exhausting way to work that I can't see how it's um, appealing. But I suppose as well, um, I suppose as well that the assumption was or the in intention was that this is a club that was going to be sold like three years ago. Like the, the you know, from the top is what I'm saying. Like may maybe that's what they think and they're just kind of keeping it running as like best they can. Well, Not as best they can. Yeah. I, don't, I don't believe that's right, but as, as like as, as like minimally as they can just to get it that over the line. You could, you could well be right, and that would explain what's perhaps happened in the last couple of years um, when bids have been uh, allegedly coming in for the club. But this is a 14-year kind of experience that we're talking about. Um, and I could probably forgive that kind of um, situation had it evolved over the last 18 months or so, but it hasn't. It's been there for years. Um, and we all know that, um, you know, the club uh, failed the test to get Category 1 uh, status for the academy. I think that was back in 2013-14 time. Um, I'll have to check on the dates. Don't, uh, don't uh, put any money on that. But, you know, that was for the elite player performance plan. Um, right. And Newcastle didn't achieve Category 1 status. Now, at that time when Newcastle weren't getting that Category 1 accreditation, um, clubs that were in League 1, Wigan, and in the Championship already had it. So that kind of hints at the, at the level of commitment there is to develop the, to develop the club over the, over the longer term. Um, and what that meant was, was that Newcastle couldn't recruit players from outside of the North East, which put them at a huge disadvantage. Um, and the reasons why they failed the test 
was quite simple, really. And, and that was they couldn't demonstrate that coaching was being provided to a sufficient standard by enough people given enough hours training to the players. Uh, so they failed the first test, and then I believe they even failed the second test and were given a further 12 months thereafter to try and put things right. And they eventually did. They, they eventually did. They've got a Category 1 status now, but that's exactly what you say, Charlotte, that they're reactive. Now, if you've got somebody in charge who's competent, who knows football, uh, that doesn't happen. So Newcastle had Derek Lambayas in position at that time, and he resigned when Joe Kinnear was appointed. And Joe Kinnear, if you'll remember, had big plans to redevelop the training ground. And, and actually, planning permission was uh, given for their yeah. plans. But that was seven years ago. Yeah, they're just really planning it to really, really making sure those plans are drawn out properly. That's what the seven years is about, right, Mick? It's nothing to do with like. Well, not I think doing that's, it. A very, that's a very generous assessment, Charlotte, and that and that's and that's why we love you so much. It's an, it's I'm an eternal optimist. Yeah, it it it, it speaks to like that feeling among the fan base, and not an unfounded one of this total lack of ambition, doesn't it? It's like it's example after example of of unambitious or or just. Or, or not even unambitious because I feel like that is in itself an active thing like it's just a nothing it's just a nothing approach to it but it's really dangerous because I know some of and I don't want to you know go over the top and be over dramatic on this but you know those of us who watched the program last week about abuse in football mm. um you know these things these things don't happen by accident and they don't continue by accident you people aren't it isn't just a lot of bad luck that it happened at that place and time it happened because there was no oversight of yeah. um of processes about checks about how children should be um looked after what the safeguarding processes were what about reporting um what about external oversight etc etc so um, what worries me is is that we have these functions within Newcastle United which don't seem to have any general oversight by anyone that's in charge who's competent. The club just seems to be, certain elements of the club seem to just be floating about with minimal attention and minimal competence directing them. And I worry about that for lots of different reasons. We have you know, we're, we're, um, for the academy, for coaching, for medical and sports science, um, we're, we'll not be at the cutting edge of anything and we'll be barely competent, as we've seen with the um, elite player performance um, uh, standards, um, where, we, where, we, where, we missed, where we missed off. So that, that's kind of on the playing side where things are so lacking. And it does worry me that such a wide scale kind of, wide range and part of the club's activity is just left to rack and ruin and Joe Joyce leaving for the reasons previously stated. It's just like, you know, if you were going to put money on one club in the country where that was going to happen, it would be us, wouldn't it? You know, um, it's it's so, just, yeah, and, the beard, and coming on the back of the Beardsley thing just makes me worry about what the governance is within the club, who's checking what and who yeah. has ultimate control and is that person who has ultimate control? Are they competent? Are they qualified? Do they know what they're doing? 
And if it's late January, then I would say there's no reason to believe he, he has that confidence because, you know, it, it, before Ashley got here, he was the, was the team secretary. And also, if it is Lee Charnley who's, and 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 it it must be because we're not, we, you know, he's the sort of most senior. But if it is Lee Charnley, I guess um, that's he's. It's never going to be. It needs a dedicated person, right? It needs it needs it needs a dedicated, as you say, competent person to be. If you're just looking at the academy, to sort of be, you know, putting those processes in place, making sure that the kids are safe um you know that governance stuff it's and and Lee Charney's role is clearly enormous because if he's just MD then he's in like in charge or the book stops with him for so many elements of the football club right so that is worrying if it yeah. if it is him if it is him because you know, but it's, it's Charlotte it's it's not just the academy it's sports science it's the development of that facility it's all it's also scouts um and um and you know things have changed in the world over the last over the last couple of years we've had brexit which means we'll not be able to recruit from europe as readily as we as we once did so yeah. what's the how's the club reconfiguring itself to have a worldwide kind of network of scouts um, uh, you know, um, we had a really good scout in Graham Carr, in my opinion. He, he got some right and he got some wrong, but that's, you know, how it works. And, and some of the ones that he got wrong, he never thought the club were going to buy anyway. Um, but who's in charge of the scouting network? Is it Steve Nixon? I, I really don't know, you know, if, if and how is he doing that? And what's his relationship with, with the, with, with um with Steve Bruce if he has yeah. one etc so it's, it's all blurred lines between these between these roles and it seems to me that um every now and again Mike Ashley will kind of do something you know and and I've heard that Steve Bruce was Mike Ashley's appointment um he wasn't Lee John Lee's appointment so then you think well Mike Ashley often says I just let them get on with it and I don't have any day-to-day -day running of the club but that's not true you know, so I can't be true, in my opinion. Um, but that's just on the plain side. There's other parts of how the club operates that you have questions about as well, you know, on the business side. But we'll come to that next, I suppose. Yeah, well, well, let's let's talk about um, about that side. Um, I guess, do you want to talk about income streams? Do you want to talk about yeah. business yeah, development? So, uh, and I'm probably not the best person, best qualified person to talk about this, but... Um, you know, a couple of people in particular have wrote for True Faith over many years who do know how to read a balance sheet and they do understand business. Um, Andy Trobe and Chris Betts have done, you know, some brilliant work for, for the fanzine in, in years gone by. But um, before we kind of talked about the income streams, we just kind of mentioned that somebody's just left the club um, uh, and, um, and no one's mentioned it. It hasn't. It has. It's barely got any coverage at all, and that's Kate Bradley, um, who has left, and her job title was head of business development, I think. So her, she's been there just under two years, and she took over from Nicole Aitken, who had the same job title, who again was there for about two years prior to that time as well. Yeah. And I really can't see what they've achieved, but they have left. And it's critical that we've got, um, well, I've just come to Kate, and I don't mean any, you know, I don't mean anything by this, Kate. I've 
no doubt is a, a lovely woman, etc., and did a, a, a good job in difficult circumstances managing the Newcastle United Foundation for 10 years, given how toxic the Newcastle brand has become um, in the city and in the wider region, amongst its own supporters um, and other stakeholders. But she was taken from that role to, being, to replace Nicole Aitken. Now, with due respect to Kate, what business experience did she have as the chief executive of a very small and modest charity. Now it's got a big brand, that's one thing, but its income and its profile and its achievements, it's small fry really in the in the business world, but she did a good job with it. I'm not, you know, I wouldn't take that away from her. Um, I think I'm always gonna think the foundation should be doing much more than it, than it is. And I still hold that opinion, but I can't say that Kate did anything other than a decent job. So, but what qualified her? To move into that position at a at a club with a you know with the turnover and the profile and the income that it has, um, and I would say she didn't have that. And in two years, I don't know what she's achieved. So do we have greater sponsorship now? Are that are the income streams increasing? What are the big deals that she's helped the club sign, um, which will provide money to buy players and make us more competitive on the pitch? In a way that Freddie Fletcher did back in the 90s when he was headhunted from uh, Rangers by John Hall, who transformed our um, our uh, 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 income and made us far more competitive to the degree that when uh, Graham Souness was the manager, we had the sixth highest payroll in the country. And that would have been one of the highest payrolls in Europe as well. So. And we've fallen back from that position and we've fallen back from that position because the club isn't making any money beyond what it would get from TV money. And we know that income has vastly increased. But Mike Ashley, Lee John Lee and Kate Bradley and Nicole Aitken and Uncle Tom Cobbley and all, they had nothing to do with that money increasing. The, the income stream at the club, uh, and there's a lot of kind of, stuff that we'll probably put out to accompany this um, podcast that will go into the detail. It's just stagnated, sit on Mike Ashley's watch, which makes us less competitive. And we can speculate on why that's happened. Yeah, I I, I mean, I, 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 I don't know the CVs of these people. I don't know what... Um, what qualifies people for certain roles sometimes it's a it's a step up and it's like okay we think you might like let's give you a try I suspect it would be something like that in in a business context I I have lots of really ambitious friends who step up into roles that are way outside of their experience level and and they're sort of you know they give a good pitch and the um and the hiring person will say you okay let's try it so so maybe it was that kind of um scenario i do think the foundation i would i would always want the foundation to be bigger i, I think it has so much potential as so many things attached to newcastle united do but i do think that they do some really great stuff i really just want to be clear on that i i would oh, absolutely I'm, I'm not denying that i'm not denigrating that surely no but no what, i, I what know I'm saying I just... it's okay who's gone from the chief executive of what is a small charity um, to then becoming the head of business development 
at a prominent Premier League club. What is it, or what was it, in her CV, and indeed Nicole Aitken's CV, that convinced Meg Ashley that she, either Nicole or Kate, were going to be the people to increase the club's income so that it could buy better players, put them on bigger wages to help the football team compete on the park. What was it? And I can't see anything. So, but I'm not a business guru. But what I do know is, oh, I'm not. But what I do know is, the income hasn't increased. So the bottom line is, in their time, even in the last four, five, ten years, it hasn't increased. It's fossilised, and we are getting left behind by clubs that we had a greater income than. Um, before Mike Ashley landed. Well, we've even had like a good income in the Ashley era um, in 20... I'm going to... My eyes are going to go down because I have a stat here. Um, in Oh, and if you're just w- listening to this, we are also recording for YouTube. I'm not just weirdly telling you what I'm doing. Um, yeah, we had the eighth highest turnover in the league in 2018 with 178 million. And the club told Alex at the fans forum the following season that their aim for the 17-18 season was 15th. So there's this massive disconnect between like, you know, eighth highest turnover in the league and what we're going for. And so to me, that's just, it's not about generating, for me, I don't know if this is right, this is just a theory, but for me, it's not about generating revenue to buy better players or to to get higher up in the league. It's about paying back the loans and and making Mike Ashley richer. Maybe. Absolutely. Yeah, I think think you're right. And, um, you know, the summer that we were, um, we got, I think it was uh, Rafa's second season going into, um, going into his second season in the Premier League, I should say, that the club decided at a moment's notice that they were going to repay 30-odd million quid back to Mike Ashley from the loans that he he provided. Now, that wasn't the right time to do that. That's not a great way to convince an elite coach, an elite manager, that um, the club wanted to go forward. That was a statement to him to say, I don't care about what you want to do. Um, I don't care what you want to achieve at the football club. I want my money back. Um, And I think that was a big step changing in souring relationships between Ashley and uh, and Rafa. Yeah, it doesn't, I mean, even if it was like some kind of repayment schedule, like, you know, I'm trying to be business minded here and also play devil's advocate. I don't necessarily disagree with anything you're saying, Mick, I'm just, you know, thinking about questions that people might have. Um, and even if it was like a preordained repayment schedule, it, yeah, so right about the optics of it. And I think, the optics of of so many decisions this club makes is so terrible. Um, just short term, aren't they? You know, so um, you know what what what's Newcastle about if it's doing stuff like that? Um, and that would appear it would you know um, no surprises. Mike Ashley's not really interested in football, and he's not really interested in what the football club can do. But his disinterest and lack of kind of um attention to what's going on means that the club is now on the brink of relegation yeah the third, yeah. The third time on his watch and uh, and what that and what that might demonstrate is is that actually what he's doing is is not working he needs to think about something differently 
It's a strange one, isn't it? Because as we sort of knock on the door of relegation for the third time in his reign, you would think that if this is an asset, you know, that's the one thing that people said earlier on in the season, and I said it myself, the one kind of shred of hope that I was holding on to about our season was that Mike Ashley wants to protect his asset and make it worth as much as it can be. Um, so that he can sell it in the Premier League for you know a quarter of a billion pounds, um, but the further we go along with our season, the less evidence I'm seeing that he's even doing that. Like, where is he? What? How is this protecting his asset? It is. I mean, there is a there is a fair argument, isn't there? There is a there's a fair argument that suggests that Mike Ashley thought he would have been done with Newcastle by now. Yes. Um, and that and that the club would have been sold last summer, uh, and um, and he would have um, he would have he would have been he would have moved on, and he would have had his money, and Newcastle would be, you know, uh, in a different place. Um, but when that hasn't happened, um, you know, when you got to January, um, he decided that he wasn't going to invest in any players. In fact, the squad's weaker after January than it was. Um, you know, perhaps fractionally, but they got rid of Aaron's and they got rid of uh, Yedlin, didn't they? Yeah. Um, and they brought they brought a, a young lad in from Arsenal on loan, and that's and then and later Graham, and then later Graham Jones. Yeah, so, don't forget Graham know, Jones. Ah, uh, exactly. So, um, so Jones who came in, um, and uh, and that and that's your lot, isn't it? So, um, even in even in January, you know, when he had an opportunity to protect his asset by yeah. signing a couple of players um, or sacking the manager and bringing somebody in, um, chose not to do so. So you just wonder. Um, there is an argument, of course, as well, was that who would he be able to get that would be better than Steve Bruce? Um, yeah. And, we're, you know, let's not go down that rabbit hole, but, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult one um, because if he makes any pitch to any manager potential manager it'll be what kind of structure do you want what do you want to achieve etc and as ever you kind of get anyone to decent to sign up for his plan because his plan is career suicide isn't it by and large yeah yeah absolutely like uh, you know i don't know many elite managers like you were saying who would take the um Monica head coach without the proper structure behind head coach yeah. which you mentioned at the top of the show which is just clearly not on the table because we don't have it right and and I don't know anybody any elite or even not elite like mid mid Premier League like good championship managers maybe even who uh, you know have a look have a look at say a lad like Stephen Gerrard at Rangers, who has done a really good job there, hasn't he? And um, uh, and kind of toppled Celtic um, in a pivotal season in Scottish in Scottish football, and they're unbeaten and blah blah blah. Um, so what? And there's a lot of talk about his hot his hot property at the minute, isn't he, Gerald? There'll be a lot of clubs that will be looking at him. And Newcastle should be a club that is looking at Stephen Gerrard. But why on earth would Stephen Gerrard come to Newcastle? and work within the structure that there is now, which is chaotic, really. Um, you know, there's nobody who seems to, you know, the blurred lines, Lee, 
Lee Charnley, then you've got him. He's one thing. And then you've got Justin Barnes, the kind of the ghost of St. James's. Nobody really knows what his role is and what he does and the extent of his powers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he doesn't speak to the press, but then again, none of them do. Um, so you've got that whole thing going on. Um, and and for me, if I was Gerard or any aspiring, young, ambitious coach trying to make me name in the in the game, I would avoid Mike Ashley, like play not Newcastle United because Newcastle United is a great club, as we all agree. But it would be a club. It would it, within the structure that it's at now, you would just run a million miles from it. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, and and that in itself is probably a podcast which we've done and will continue to do until we everything moves on and we make happy podcasts again. Can you imagine? That'd be nice. Um, so the element in your article, um, that we should discuss, I think, is the fan engagement and the supporters liaison officer role. It all kind of rolls back into that. How is this club structured question and who does what, um, but, you know, I, I'm on the board of the trust, um, which I'm sure people listening are aware of, but, um, Lee Charnley promised the trust the club would pay an accountant to go through the books with them, and, and that hasn't happened. And in the pro, it was a match day program versus Arsenal in 2019, where Lee Charnley literally wrote, "You'll be hearing more from me." Like he wrote a little thing. We haven't, we have not. Um, but there's no real fan networking meetings beyond, you know. I think a couple on ticketing when it looked like we might be going back to stadiums. There are real like I, I this is sort of something something I get stuck on because I joined the, well I, I put myself up for the board because I love the club and love our fans, but I also because I just think the communication's so terrible and I really wanted to try and work to change that. Um, I'm not a magician, as it turns out, and I haven't really affected a real change. We've spoken with the club a couple of times, and it hasn't really borne any fruit. I and what struck me most was, um, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit about ticketing. Thomas, who's on the board as well, is is really amazingly engaged with all the fans. And with ticketing, he goes to every match, every match. It's amazing, um, and. He, you know, we, we, the, we kind of talked about, oh, well, again, it's that reactive thing. It was a, what are you doing about ticketing? What are you doing about this? How are you going to organise it if there's only 10,000 people let into the ground? And it was like, a, well, w when we get more information about that, we'll we'll make a plan. It's like, well, for me, I, I think it's quite low-hanging fruit to start making a plan now to have a couple of eventualities, like, mapped out. So you can say to the fans really early on, like, okay, this has happened and so we're going to do this. Or what do you think of this? Like engage fans, but it just doesn't happen. No, because because of leadership, because of really poor leadership. And as you say, that's really low-hanging fruit, isn't it? And if you've got a guy like Thomas on the, on the trust board who does a great job um, around all of the ticket and stuff, etc., um, why wouldn't somebody in a senior position at St James's Park pick the phone up to Thomas and say, we'd like to talk to you about what you think should happen? 
and then we kind of you know we'll we'll decide what the art of the possible is um and then whatever we do will be a will be a joint venture between the largest supporters trust in the country uh, and uh, and this club and that seems to me to be really a, a kind of an easy thing to do but they'll not do it uh, because they haven't got the, they haven't got that level of leadership and confidence in themselves to kind of behave in an honest and open way um so um you mentioned the you know engagement with the with fans and uh, and under Ashley, um, like no Newcastle board has ever done it pro properly. So uh, the last 14 years aren't, um, aren't an outlier for brilliant fan engagement in the club's history. Um, but, um, you know, they, they, they have to have some kind of fan engagement. It's the rules of the Premier League and UEFA. Um, but Newcastle don't even have a full-time supporter as liaison officer. So there's a, there's a common myth that the supporter as liaison officer is Lee Marshall. It isn't Lee Marshall. Lee Marshall just picks up bits and pieces for that job that he originally done when he joined the club. But since that, since that time, uh, Lee Marshall's job has changed on a couple of occasions, but he hasn't been the support as liaison officer in any way, shape or form since around about 2016. He's currently the head of media. So you've got to have who, and he took that job over, uh, over from Wendy Taylor when she left. So you've you've got to kind of ask who's. I mean, and this is a Premier League question as well, but it it shouldn't be a Premier League question. It should just be one for the club, and the club should be saying we need to have a supporters liaison officer and a functioning engagement strategy with our supporters uh, because they are our customers. I hate using that expression, but we are because we pay for a product. Uh, uh, to get into matches, to buy merchandise and all of that kind of stuff. So the club just seems to be deaf to all of those things. But in my, I, I truly think the club is breaking the guidance provided by UEFA and providing, provided by the Premier League because it doesn't have a full-time supporters liaison officer or do any engagement with supporters. Now, when it does engagement, it cannot be like, the ridiculous fan liaison kind of committee that they had, which was, you know, um, there's more openness in North Korea than there is in um, the, uh, the fan liaison committee. I'm exaggerating to make the point, Charlotte. Um, so um, in, in truth, though, you know, they were hermetically sealed, uh, rehearsed um, uh, kind of events that only fell apart when Alex, Alex kind of got involved and behaved in a, in a absolutely brilliant way by exposing what was going on in them um, and they didn't have a way back from that so fair play to, to him but it needs to be replaced and they need to they need to use a Boris Johnson expression when they do put it back together they need to build back better don't they um, but, at, but at the minute there's nothing going on That's, and it's you know again yeah. it's down to a, a cramping lack of leadership at the club yeah, and I think I think you're right. I think it's that spreading of roles as well that I kind of touched on with the with regards to the academy and if Lee Charnley is in fact sort of the person that looks after all of that stuff as well as as everything, um, because you know Lee Marshall, we've spoken to him. He's been you know good enough to give him a bit, give us a bit about his time um, on the trust. Um, 
if it, I mean, you checked his LinkedIn, I think, to he's the media officer, right? So if that is the case, and he is doing these bits of support or liaison stuff, it's just, there's so much, um, there's so much to be gained from a full-time SLO role, I think, um, that he he probably doesn't have time for. There's not really the inclination from the top, is, is, is my feel. Um, but like I say, like, it's probably my favorite phrase, but it is such low hanging fruit. Like I said in one of the meetings, you know, what can we do to help you? Like we're here, we use us as a resource, like we're, we are available and, and you know, are, are trying to have a direct link to, to 14,000 fans or whatever. We can, we can survey them. We can do X, Y, and Z. Um, I would, I would love, I would love to link up in that way. I think it would be brilliant and such a positive move by the club. But as but yet, again, we Charlie, you say so, um, you're supposed to have a support as liaison officer. And, you know, Sunderland, for all the mirth that they've provided us with in recent years, um, and the relegations that they've had, and the financial difficulties that they've got themselves into, they've still got a full-time support as liaison officer. They've maintained that. Whereas Newcastle, in the Premier League, with all of the money that's involved in it, haven't been bothered to do that. But I'll go back. I'll go back to the primary part, uh, part of my kind of thesis on Newcastle, which is there's a complete cramp and lack of leadership. So if you're in charge, if you've got a function and leadership at that club, they'll want to know what the supporters liaison officer is doing. They'll want to know how effective they are. They'll want to know how the club can draw the most they possibly can from them in the ways that you've described and in many many others. So why isn't that why isn't that happening at Newcastle and what is the standard of governance because to me it seems like there's just a, a handful of blokes who sit who are kind of roughly associated with Newcastle who do bits and pieces when they feel like it and who perhaps has the big, the loudest voice in the room when a certain decision needs to be made or or who can be bothered to even be in the room at a certain point in time when you're talking about Mike Ashley, who seems to have a kind of a, uh, a, a lack of interest in what's happening at the club, despite how much it's worth potentially. Yeah, I, coming back to that fact, it always just baffles me. It's like this is potentially worth 350 million. Like, You'd want to stick your oar in every now and then and make sure it was like okay. I don't know. I'm not a billionaire, and there's probably he's, a good reason for that. He's rich, but he's not that rich that he can ignore an asset that you know that was somebody last summer was going to pay 350 million quid for. I mean, I think he can whistle for that now, can't he? I mean, that's gone. That's not a that can't be on the table anymore. Uh, yeah, I mean, if even if even if that even if that takeover is still interested which i've got my doubts about um they'd be mental to pay 350 million quid for newcastle at the minute wouldn't it? yeah i yeah it can't be a team hovering over 18th place can't be with yeah. well that's lost a season and a half of um uh gate admissions as well and um yeah. and, and there's going to be a review of the tv deals as well they're not going to be as generous as the as they previously were and, and they might even they might even decrease. So, um, sorry, Mike. I think you've had your you had your big chance, and somebody took it away from you. 
I've said this before and I, and I keep saying it, it, it does make me laugh in a very sad way. Um, the way that Mike has made his name, you know, selling cut price stuff and yet can't cut the price. This is the one thing he's wildly overpriced. Um, but, uh, it's mental and it is. It, I think he was doing well to get 300 and what a million for it because you know it it was it wasn't uh priced as, as well as that previously um for all of the reasons because he's neglected it you know it's like the it's like if you don't do your house up on a regular uh, basis it doesn't really matter how much you paid for it it's not going to accumulate value in the way that it should if the roof's leaking and the boiler needs replacing etc so yeah he's um uh that well that, that one's going to run and run until it stops yeah um, and you touched on that, Mick, um, men. There's not a lot of diversity going on at the club, right? And you kind of mentioned this in your article um, as well. Do you want to elaborate? Yeah, on that? so I've, I've mentioned um, something called the Premier League Equality Standard. And um, again, a bit like the APP, um, Newcastle were the last to um to get their heads around it um i'm not even sure where it's at at the, at the minute I, I i did get a nudge that the premier league were absolutely exasperated with newcastle's kind of reluctance to get involved with it um and um and i think it was 2019 um lucy oliver um was appointed um to drive forward some changes within the club um, that that seemed to take an inordinate a length of time to get to that point, um, and um, uh, whether or not this is true or not, I don't know. But I did hear a whisper that the Premier League were considering deducting Newcastle points, Premier League points, uh, at that time uh, if they failed to uh, engage with the process. So they are engaging with the process, um, but they're doing it much later than everyone else. And the Premier League equality standard, it, it you know, it's no big deal. It's about culture change and it's about the culture of your club and uh, and how you do things to engage with the local community and how you do things within the club itself. So uh, I've put a link on to, uh, within the article for those people who want to know more about that. And, and people can have their own opinions about why corporations um are required to do those those things that's that's fine people have got their opinions but the fact of the matter is the premier league itself voted to have a premier league equality standard newcastle would have been part of those discussions about uh, about implementing the premier league equality standard and then uh, seemed to do absolutely bog all about it when other clubs when other clubs were doing it far more um vigorously and enthusiastically than than we were um and that i just think uh we're, we're shameful in terms of how how little energy we put behind that um and now when i see things coming out of the club I'm, i can't help but be a bit cynical uh, about why things certain things are happening at a certain time and um etc it to me that smacks of ticking a box um, yeah. And it's and it's not really, it's not really what the club's about. Guess what, Charlotte? I'm going to mention that word again: leadership. Um, you wouldn't get into those positions 
you know, with things like the Academy, things like, you know, things like Peter Beardsley, things like Joe Joyce, things like um, uh, uh, the APP thing, um, things like the Premier League Equality Standard, things like two heads of development leaving two years into their job, if you had strong strategic leadership at the club. And, it, and and in this example, you know, leadership doesn't need to be one, you know, uh, one person. It doesn't need to be a Mike Ashley revamped or, you know, such, probably not him. It could be a really, really interesting, you could, you could compile a really interesting group of strategically minded people for each kind of faction of the club. And and I know it would cost money, but ultimately, like you'd have you'd uh, you'd be able to bring in more revenue. You'd make the place more appealing. You'd you know uh, they the, they say you have to spend money to make money, and you don't actually have to spend that much to bring in a, a strategically minded, like interesting mix of people. And that that really does seem to be the crux of the the tagline here is what is wrong with Newcastle United. It's it's all the way at the top. Well, it's it? about building the brand, isn't it? So you know, all of these, all of those things. God, I've just I, I, if the, the 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 lad twenty five year ago hearing me talk about Newcastle United as a brand would have probably wanted me to be put out in misery. But <laughs> but in, in seriousness, that's what it's about. So it's about building the brand, and that's more attractive to people around the world who might support it and might buy merchandise and TV packages and all of that kind of stuff, but also businesses that want to be associated with it. Um, you know, so have it's digital strategy, all of that kind of stuff builds the brand and so does how it engages with its supporters. And, uh, um, it, you know, and it's toxic around Newcastle and no one enjoys that kind of um, atmosphere that we seem to be completely in and that's a massive turn off for anyone whether or not it's people who are interested in football in on a different continent or whether or not it's a business who are looking to increase their profile and you know develop their own brand alongside alongside Newcastle United why would you do it so it's it's part of a kind of a, a just a it, it's it's completely negligent in terms of how to develop the club um, but as you've said, it doesn't need to be Mike Ashley. He could he could pay for some smart ass kind of consultants to come in and develop a, a plan for him, and then he would appoint someone to take it forward. And you know, and, and he wouldn't be getting relegated three times in fourteen years, I've no doubt, or sit on top of a club where the supporters absolutely hate him. Yeah, it it does it does. Uh... It can't be good for him, can it? it can't be good for well, you, Ben. You can't. Nobody, nobody would want to be on that. You know, I, I often thought I can't remember the game it was when the whole ground would stand up, stand up if you hate Ashley, and he's sitting there in the Milburn stand, and I'm thinking, if you're if you're Mike Ashley, how do you feel at that precise moment? Yeah, he's, tough, he's a tough business operator, but if you make Ashley's children or his wife, or his friends. He might have some friends that he doesn't pay for, I don't know. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, how does that how does that make you feel? You're not winning, are you? You might have no. loads of money in the bank, but you're not winning at life. 
no and and there's you know there's you know a lot to be said for like oh i'm fine like it's fine like that they're, they're idiots i water off ducks back but it never is and it gets to you and and yeah i just think like it's a shame that he's not the sort of person that for that to happen to would be a catalyst for change but yeah. clearly clearly that's not his mo that's not how it has affected i sometimes him. feel as though that he's he thinks and speaks a different language to everyone else. You know, certainly to you and I and other supporters. I don't think he thinks. I think he's in a different paradigm to all of us. And he's, and people who've done business with him will say that he's always three, four, five steps ahead. And he may well be. But it doesn't look like it, does it? It doesn't feel like like what he's doing with Newcastle is, is succeeding. Not when he, we're going to get relegated for the third season in a, in a row. And I, I have heard this argument that actually he's not really bothered because if the club gets relegated he'll fund it so that it gets promoted and then the loan for the money that it's needed to get promoted he'll just take it back anyway from future income and then the cycle continues i don't think that'll happen again no i, no, I think I they'd be very fortunate to do, if they if they were to get promoted again they'd be very fortunate I don't, I don't see it happening. Very depressing note to kind oh, of wrap things up on, don't we? Well, it hasn't been, it's not really been an uplifting one, I won't lie. But it is interesting to sort of examine, you know, you can you can throw cabbages over the wall of the training ground all you like. Um, don't waste good food, though. Keep it for yourself. <laughs> um, and... And on all of that, but you know, Steve Bruce is a symptom of this. Um, he is he is not a good enough manager. I think we can all agree, but he's a symptom of a really, really, really bad leadership and management of a club that deserves so much better. And and I think Mick's gone into some incredible detail there and and raised some really interesting questions. You know, you might not agree. If you don't, fine, engage with us. We're we're at TFNUFC on Twitter, and you know, you can do it in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. It's um, but I think I think you'd struggle to find a Newcastle fan who believes this club is being run well, and um, and so it is really interesting to sort of boil it down to the different areas, the academy, to look at diversity, to look at um, you know, fan engagement, that stuff. It's it's it has been really interesting to chat to you about it, Mick. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we? Before I direct people, yeah, I think you know um, it, it isn't particularly a, um, a rosy kind of picture at Newcastle, and for for all of the reasons that we've discussed, and not least of what's happening on the pitch. But I I, I do remain positive about the club. Um, eventually, something will happen. God knows, I might be six foot under when it happens. But um, you know, Newcastle is still one of the best clubs to buy in the world. You know, so I, I look at it and I think that stadium, it needs a lick of paint to say the least. Um, but it's a city centre stadium, it's 52,000. I'm sure it could be made bigger um, if, if you know, the great minds were to, uh, to, to put their heads together. Um, it's got so much potential and it is underperforming as a business. And it is underperforming in every possible way, on and off the pitch, business-wise, the whole lot. If somebody gets a hold of it with the right intentions, and there can be business intentions because, you know, if that club has any success, uh, it gets itself in the top six, seven, etc. The value of the club will increase 
yeah to an enormous degree and they'll get their they'll get the money back and um and and they'll have a huge asset and it'll be one that will give them huge pleasure as well like it would us but yeah so the the club um remains absolutely a brilliant brilliant football institution it's got the best supporters in the world bar none um and um and just it's i think that's what drives us all mental with the knowledge that what could be so and i think you know some of the thick pundits that comment on our club they don't understand that i haven't got any kind of um understanding of the scale of what they're talking about and that's why it's so great when you've got somebody like kevin keegan and rafa benitez who get it and and understand it and there are all plenty of others as well obviously but that club is just it's it's ready for takeoff and anyone with good intentions um you know um would 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 get the money back and they'd get a a, a massive sense of achievement and taking us forward and not much will not much is needed to to do that i agree that's that's kind of a nice more positive ending i think for our podcast um so with that i will leave you i'll direct you to mick's article built on sand on the true faith website there's plenty of supporting documents and articles as well that i think mick links to directly in his article we'll put something in the info if you're watching this on youtube um, and in the show notes if you're listening on um on as, as an audio podcast um but thank you so much mick for um for sitting with me tonight and talking through what you think is wrong with this football club it's been really interesting there's so much potential here and uh, and fingers crossed big change comes in the next couple of years thanks for listening take care everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why what do we know about magnesium well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.